Yeah, being Portuguese, <laughs> I'm on the opposite problem. The reason why we wear chains is so that we know when to stop shaving. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Airbrake. I don't know about you, but week in and week out, I spend hours debugging my code when I could be working on building new stuff. Then I started using Airbrake.io, our latest sponsor, and the time I spent debugging was cut in half. Airbrake alerts you to errors in your software, then helps you diagnose and fix them. That means no more wasted time searching log files and more time writing and shipping great code. Airbrake supports .NET and all major programming languages. Sign up at getairbreak.com slash rogues for a free 30-day trial and the chance to win a $500 Amazon gift card at the end of the month. It's a completely free trial and you'll be shocked at how much time it saves you. Again, that's getairbreak.com slash rogues. Hey everybody and welcome to another Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have Eric Berry. Hey! Dave Kimura. Hey everybody. I'm Charles Max Wood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Roberto Paolo. Hello, world. Do you want to introduce yourself since you haven't been on this show before? Sure. So I'm a Rubyist from Cape Town. I've been programming for probably about eight years, but six years in Ruby. Yeah, I've lived here my whole life. I'm working for a fintech company. We're based in Cape Town, but we're actually a borderless company. So we have offices in New York and in London. And yeah, just very excited, excited to be here. I, I'm also one of the organizers for the Ruby Fusa event, which is our South African Ruby conference, which happens every year in Feb. And then we, I'm also one of the organizers for the Ruby Decamp, which happens down here in South Africa, which is happens every September. Yeah, so that's, that's going to be pretty exciting. So yeah, help around there. Nice. How's the Ruby scene in Cape Town? The Ruby scene actually down here is growing quite well. So we have, I would say, a handful of companies which are complete Ruby houses. We have one other one that's down here that's also in fintech. And then we have a couple that are just, they, they go out and, and build apps for people. So they're almost on a commission base. So you bring them an idea and they'll, they'll be able to give you a prototype and you'll be able to play with it and get some, some uh, value out of that immediately. In fact, our company's main app was initially built by one of those companies called Platform 45. And uh, so, yeah, our initial app was brought up by them. And then after a couple of years, they started hiring a couple of devs to take care of it. And then the handover happened. And so, yeah, we're, we're maintaining and, and working on that app still today. So, yeah, it's, it's actually really good. I would say at the Ruby Fusa event, we have about 200, 150 to 200 participants every year. The Ruby Decamp is capped at 60, so it's not that big. But, I mean, our, we have coding coffees every week, which have quite a good attendance. Up in Joburg, it's quite good. So we have between 20 and 30 people there every week, and that that actually kind of flows quite nicely. We have a Ruby RB, um, a Josie RB event, which happens also in Joburg. That also pulls a couple um, people. That happens once a month. And then... You know, within within our company, we have like there's several other thing. Uh, there's a back office developers group which also meets up here in Cape Town, and that has between 20 and 30 people that come every week. Um, so yeah, there's there's quite a lot of things happening. The the scene is looking quite good, and it is definitely growing. Um, there's a, a quite a big need. A lot of developers are you know shifting out and and finding work elsewhere just because you know the the global need for Rubyist is also you know picking up. So we have a lot of our developers leaving too. We've had one 
one really big, uh, well-named named developer down here in Cape Town who left up to London, and then we've got two or three that have left to Australia. So we do have uh, quite a few still, but we are definitely um, looking at growing. So there's a big cool. vacuum. That's cool. And so how is the rail scene there? So, you know, a lot of people, you know, at least several years ago, when you thought Ruby, you thought rails. Is that the case in Cape Town or is it, uh, are you guys more like Kamani or Sinatra based or just, you know, no uh, web frameworks? So I think it's a bit of a mix, but I would say mostly rails just because of how quickly you can get to, you can prototype an app. And you can get value immediately. So a lot of the the guys that start off these apps that are like a bit, there's a couple of companies. So there's like Zero One, there's Platform Forty Five, Unboxed, which is also another big name. And these these are all companies that will go out and and develop apps. And then what it does is it creates that that need. And so there's a lot of I think especially here in South Africa we have they they were saying that a, a growth of about six hundred percent every year. In the in the technology industry, just alone because of the the adoption rate of technology in Africa, because of the number of people that are slowly moving towards smartphones, and you know the the people that. Um, so I, I spent some time in Kenya, and it's actually quite scary to know that most most of the people that live there they spend close to thirty uh, percent of their annual, I mean their monthly salaries, just charging their devices, charging their phones, oh, wow. Uh, wow, paying for that electricity, and so that's 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 a real need, um, and it's because a lot of there's something called M-Pesa, which is a, a program. It's almost like a a digital way of sending and transferring money, um, because a lot of the people that are in these more impoverished areas, they they can't afford to have bank accounts and stuff, and so it, it becomes quite hard, and so. A student at high school, he had an idea of let's let's put all that money on your phone and almost use like SMSs to transfer that that money and and like a, a, lots of microtransactions, but at a very very small cost. And so that changed that changed the way that people use money completely. Um, and so a lot of people started going, and, and you don't need a smartphone or anything; you can just use your you know any Nokia thirty three ten or whatever you have. Um, and so it's it's changed the face of technology, and so more and more people have, not, you know, started moving into your smartphones, and because of that giant adoption rate, every every company that's in in Africa is slowly, no matter what it is, has some sort of technology link, right? They all have a website or they have some sort of app to to do something, but you know, everybody, no matter where you are, who you are, like from the smallest little restaurants to food stands, to whatever, they all have like the own little websites and web apps. And so there's, with this big need, you know, we need something that can develop and and give you that that value really quickly. And Rails, I think, is one of the best applications that, that does that, right? You can go within a week and have something within five minutes and, and have like a framework app. And then within a week, have something that's actually giving you value that they can they can start trying out and say, oh, I don't like this little feature. And, and so... I think those companies are actually um, doing quite well. Um, a lot of the apps, they don't have massive user bases, and that's also quite ideal um, for, the, for, for Rails. And so I think there is quite a good need, but um, yeah, I think right now I would say that I'm not too familiar with the other languages. I want to speak for them, but I would say within the Ruby community alone, we're seeing like uh, between two or three really big companies using rails every year coming into the market which is quite cool are there other languages that are that are more common there that so 
it seems that Ruby is is taking kind of a, a PR hit, maybe where and it's it's always been the joke the Ruby can't scale, but these newer languages that are coming out like Elixir tend to take a lot more of the the mind share, at least the younger mind share. Are you seeing that that as well there? So it's, it is very interesting. I look at a, a bunch of the developers that I communicate at these uh, coding coffees and some of the other events. And the story with Ruby is that a lot of the developers that are working within Ruby are polyglots. They come from some other language. So we don't have any universities teaching Ruby or any schools teaching Ruby. And so generally, the people that come from a Ruby background are ones that have experimented with some sort of language in the past. And that, and that provides value. And these developers are often, um, they're probably the highest paid, it's probably the highest paid language to develop in, in South Africa. So mm-hmm. Ruby is quite regarded just because, you know, you've come from a different background, you have experience in uh, a, a multitude of languages. And so, you know, if you see a problem, not everything looks, if you, if you never have it, not everything looks like a nail and you may be able to give a better idea or a different approach. And so we, we, a lot of the people that are in Ruby or pro- programming Ruby that work at these Ruby houses, they do play around with these other technologies. So a lot of, a lot of the, the industry is moving towards Elixir. That's a, a big one just because of how similar it is to Ruby. And I think a way that the, the community is moving, I think a lot of the people also moving to, well, they, because they interact and they work with JavaScript, a lot of them also, they, I see their names also at the JavaScript conferences that happen in South Africa. So you often find these these guys that are t- programming in Ruby and work with it every day. It's not their only language. It's one of, of a few that they'll probably work with on an everyday basis. Huh. So it, we, I recently went to an awesome conference called uh, the Ruby Hack in Salt Lake City. And it was very interesting because the keynote speaker was Dave Thomas. He's a great guy. But the, the most interesting part of that is Dave. So Dave Thomas, as you know, is uh, the owner of Wendy's. The owner of Wendy's. <laughs> yes. The owner of Wendy's. He's a jolly old man. So – he gets up and his talk is all about Elixir. And he basically told the, the audience, and Chuck, you were there, weren't you? Nope. I missed it. I was oh, out of town he that week. Uh, he told the audience, he said, uh, he, he basically made such an argument for Elixir that he, he, he made everybody think like, uh, am I wasting my time? And I talked to him afterwards and I said, so it seems like you're using Elixir for everything now. And he said, yeah, I am. He said, pretty much I am. So part of me wondered like, well, how much of this is him? It, 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 it just, it, it was curious to me. And I, I bring that up because I think that's, that's the message that's being sent top down right now about Elixir versus Ruby is it's a very viable alternative option to developers with nearly the same type of uh, uh, deliverability. I, I don't know. I don't have the experience there. You know, uh, <laughs> I'll say, one, Ruby is not dead. It's not going to die. It's not in jeopardy of dying, right. in my opinion. Right. I think Elixir is really cool. I think the performance of it is definitely desirable. However, you have a kind of a paradigm right now where back several years ago, Ruby on Rails was this hot topic. You know, it had a lot of momentum behind it and stuff. And I think it's really has matured now. So I don't think we're going to see this huge shift into Elixir 
from a corporate standpoint because you have so many larger companies who have invested in a framework or stack. You know, just like, you know, back in the 90s, you had Microsoft and, you know, company just bought into that and that's what they did. They became Microsoft shops. So you kind of have that now with Ruby where you have a company who has adopted a language or a framework and that's what they primarily work in. Even if a better thing comes along, you know, in my opinion, I think that as far as web design goes, Ruby on Rails is superior to .NET in many aspects. Maybe not the performance, but uh, stability and just a lot of the other things that Rails has to offer with migrations and the ORM. But those Microsoft shops did not switch over to Ruby. You know, just like the Ruby shops aren't going to switch over to Elixir. They might find some places where Elixir can um, be used as an extension or something within their existing application to speed up some slower performing functions. But I don't think it's going to be a huge shift. So Ruby's definitely not dead. Yeah, At least not well, about no, no doubt. Yeah, one no other doubt. thing I mean, that I'm just going to no. jump in here with is just because I've talked to a lot of people, I've talked to Dave uh, pretty extensively about this. And, you know, just besides adoption and whether people are going to move, the more I talk to more people, because I talk to people pretty heavily invested in Node.js and things like that as well. And in a lot of cases, what we find is that, you know, most of these languages and most of these frameworks can solve the problem people need to solve. I mean, it, they, they solve 80 to 90% of the cases just fine the way that they are. And so it's only if you need the things that that particular uh, system, paradigm, language, etc., really shines in is when you're going to go, you know what, we can't use Ruby here. So, you know, if you absolutely need multi-threaded, multi-process, uh, you know, you, you find that functional programming is just, you know, it just for whatever problem you're solving solves it better, you know, then, then you go look at Elixir. But most people otherwise are just going to reach for what's familiar. And for a lot of people, that's Ruby. A lot of other people, it's JavaScript. And so they just reach for the thing because it works and because they know that they can get work done in it quickly. Yeah, I think also Ruby gives us more than just a syntax or, you know, or like speed or whatever. It gives us a culture. It gives us a perspective. It gives the programmers a specific direction to move towards. And I think the biggest thing is that it's it's given them feelings. And I think, like, if you look at a lot of the conferences, there was one of the programmers that I admire quite a bit. His name is Kenneth Colmer. Um, and he doesn't really work with Ruby on his everyday um, in a, on an everyday basis. And at one of the events, he just said, you know, Ruby is this language that, that you just fall for. And even though he's, he's been programming in it, he doesn't find that same sort of level of joy. And I think mm-hmm. that's, that's a big thing. I mean, if we had to look at what the industry looked like, let's say 20 years ago, you know, it, it looked, it looks very different to how it looks now. And if we had to say, what will it look like in the next 10, maybe even 15, 20 years time? You know, how, how we can start asking ourselves if, if AI was to come around during this time, and this is like quite a, a talked about topic that a lot of people speculate that it will, how would that change the world? You know, we, mm-hmm. we don't really know. We can't really tell. But I think what we need to do is, I mean, 
I'm not one that will say, you know, Ruby will be around for the next 20 years or, you know, for, for Elixir or any of these new languages that have popped up in the last 10 years or so. But what we have to say is, you know, what, what are we going to take from this language that we want to carry on into, into the future? What, what does Ruby give us? I think it's a lot more than just a language as it stands right now. And I mean, the, the syntax and the things will always change. I mean, I, I came from Ruby 1.7 and then went up to 1.82 and then 1.93 and then up like that. And along the way, the syntax changed. We had like many giant spoo- uh, speed boosts. And I was like, wow, this is really changing. And I mean, there's, there's talk about Ruby 3 changing quite a bit, that it's going to be three times faster. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people that are experimenting with different things. I've, I've worked in... Um, a couple of other languages. So I've worked in stuff like Haskell. I've worked in Delphi. I've worked, oh, I've played around a little bit with Java. And so, I mean, there's, I think each of us needs to kind of experiment, find what is good about each language and then bring that with us as we go in and explore. And I think there's nothing wrong with, with trying out a new language, maybe going out and actually trying Elixir. That's putting another tool in the toolbox that you might be able to use at some point. But I think, the one mistake that people may make is that they may say, okay, this is a great new tool. And then they put down the, the stuff that they are interested in. They put down Ruby and they mm-hmm. forget about it. Um, and they don't, they don't continue with it and they don't move as Ruby moves. Um, and when people do that, they'll, they'll be missing out on a lot. And I think, yeah, if you, if you really feel that Ruby like offers you more than just syntax and, you know, just your, your everyday programming language, then just stick with it regardless of whether you're going to try a new language or something like that. Because I believe that the value in Ruby is not just in the language itself, but what the language kind of is built. Yeah. I had a, I had a conversation with Amir Rajan who does uh, Ruby motion and we, we had quite a bit of a conversation. You can get it on the, my Ruby story podcast, but we, you know, we talked about that and just the kind of the, I don't I don't know what the word was, but just kind of the the feel of the language and the the ideas in the language and and the kind of the powerful constructs that come from that, as opposed to you know necessarily you know it, the 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 power of the language sure, but you know just the I I don't quite know what to call it, but yeah, just kind of that you know that that feeling the the flavor the anyway. Um, you know, there's the something. Magic. Yeah, well, there's something. There's something about Ruby that just, you know, in the way that you write code, that that flows better and feels different, and you know, it just you have that. And so, anyway, it's um, its spare but, fingers. Yeah, it could be. Back, <laughs> back in 1994, I went to a a, con, a Gen Con conference in Minis- in Wisconsin, and at the time they had Magic the Gathering was huge, and they and they used to say that Magic the Gathering had cocaine embedded in the embedded in the paper so i would say that ruby is the magic the gathering of, of <laughs> this this generation right it's yeah. it's just like it's magic the gathering okay Amazing. i feel better now i'm gonna push Thank us over to our topic for today so uh ruberto has given us a talk at uh ruby dev summit which is coming up in october and he's going to talk to us about date night with ruby and when we did our My Ruby Story episode, he explained a little bit more about what that was, and I just thought it was really, really interesting and would be an interesting topic to dive into as far as 
you know, I think a lot of times we get caught up in doing what we do for work and we kind of miss some of the other opportunities to grow or just to play. And so uh, do you want to explain a little bit about what Date Night with Ruby is and, and how that came about? Sure. Um, so I had I'd come from a Delphi background, as I said, and then um, I was given an experiment to, to try learn Ruby in a weekend. And so I was given a challenge on a Friday, and then on the Monday I had to hand in this challenge. And so jumped on the computer, typed, how do I learn Ruby? And then Wise Poignant Guide popped up, and I was just like, what? what is this? Is this, like, even serious? But as I got stuck into it, that, that book just, like, completely absorbed me. Um, and so it was, like, almost like within that one weekend, I fell in love with the language. I I'd actually found, like... Um, a better way of doing things. And I had, you know, than what I, what I had learned before. And so I was determined that I, I needed to learn more and more of this. And then I managed to get the job. And so after about three years in that job, um, I, if, you know, you, once you learn how the MVC works and, and you, you can pick it up a little bit better and you start doing a little bit more meta code, then eventually you get to this point where you feel like all you're doing is just, I just started feeling like I was just running config for this application. And I didn't feel like I was, I was growing. I didn't feel like I had that same sort of, um, you know, and when I initially got into that language, you almost have this like this giant growth. And so it wasn't until I went to my first Ruby conference and I was just sitting there and, you know, what other people were playing with was completely outside of the scope of what I was, what was, what I had to do at work. And so I immediately started bookmarking things, uh, just taking out notes. These are things that I wanted to learn. And so picked up a couple of good books and all of a sudden, you know, that, that excitement came back again, that magic. And so I started playing around, building new applications and experimenting with some of the things that I was uh, learning at these conferences. But then after a certain amount of time, once again, you kind of feel like you get stuck in, in, a, in this, this notch. And it, it wasn't until I went to one of the Ruby D camps that I started putting all these little things together. And I was imagining, I kind of thought of myself almost like this kid at, uh, who like was growing up and he wanted to be a, a rocket scientist. And so he went into his garage and he would build these bottle rockets and, you know, blew on the wings and he, you know, this is what he loved. And then eventually as he grew up, he became this rocket scientist and eventually what, what his job was, was like measuring wires and, you know, it was really boring stuff. But when you get back home and on the weekends, what you would do is go back to the garage and find his hobby again find the thing that he loves and, you know, mess around with bottle rockets. And I kind of thought, you know, uh, I think everybody goes through this. They almost feel like uh, what they're doing is no longer giving them that excitement. And so what I, what I set up doing, to do is I wanted to find out uh, with all the developers that were giving these talks, what was different? What, what made us feel this way? And so I set up like with a questionnaire. There was, I think there was a, a quote by Mythbusters um, which said the difference between science and messing around is that you have to write stuff down. So that's what, <laughs> nice. I, that's what I started doing, right? I started documenting everything, all the stuff that I could find. And then uh, from the responses, I started seeing that when we, when we went to these like big events or these Ruby D camps or, you know, uh, code retreats, they, what, what made that different from the Ruby at work? What made that different from the stuff that you do on an everyday basis? Because it's still writing Ruby and you have, you know, tens of thousands of people that contribute to open source. They, you know, they work nine to five, they get home, 
and then they'll go and contribute. And that to me, like I was understanding, I was trying to figure out and they did it for free. They were, they were doing this valuable work for free. And why would they, why are they doing that? Where is that magic coming from? And so from this experimentation, I started figuring out or tying very closely a relationship between the language and, and how you feel about that language. And then what I did is I stopped and I said, okay, let's imagine that we're not talking about Ruby as a language, but let's, let's say Ruby as a person. Let's imagine if Ruby is a person, right? And if you, if you have a one-sided relationship with that person, say, for instance, um, your spouse or your significant other, uh, if you only, and you work with them, if you only are with them at work and when you get home and you only talk about work, and everything with that person is about work. Eventually, that relationship that you once had would get tainted, and then you'd fall apart, and there'd be all these different problems. And so I started thinking, you know, the things that parents do, or you know, as you get older and you, and you have kids, what keeps that fire along is those date nights, those things that you, you put the kids in a room with a whole bunch of sugar and some soft stuff and a babysitter, and then you'd go out <laughs> and sugar and soft stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and then you'd go out and have fun, right? And it's those little events in your relationship that that kind of reignite that spark and keep you going. And so that's what I started doing. I started documenting all the different events that made me feel the magic again in Ruby. Um, and then I call these date nights. And I think a lot of people have this misconception that you have to spend tens of hours, you know, have to find an open source project and you have to spend so much of your extra time working on these things. And you, you don't want to constantly, a lot of people are married and have kids and they don't want to take time away, away from their family. So how do they do that? How do they improve their skills? How do they, um, you know, spend time with a, a language that they're not working with on an everyday basis? Um, and how do you do that in a whole bunch of different ways? And so that's when the date nights came up. And so I've got probably about a dozen different date night ideas. And some of them are very short. Some of them I only take five to t uh, 15 minutes on a, on a once a day type of thing. Others are like more of a one hour every week type of thing. Um, some are a one, one sort of like almost like visiting a conference. That sort of thing is a once in a year type of thing. And so, um, what I did is I categorized them and then I went and, and my wife's a, a biologist and so she, she taught me the scientific method of proving things, right? So you you go out, you have this idea of what you want to achieve, you put it to the date night as an experiment and then you document all the different results from that. And then so that's what I started doing. And I started doing that with all the people that were in that survey. And so from that, we... I picked up so much, really, uh, a lot of really good information. And so I gave the talk, but I didn't, we only had half an hour. Um, and when I started preparing it, like I was practicing and I, I couldn't fit all the stuff that I wanted to talk about in half an hour. And so um, at the Ruby Dev Summit, I'm going to be giving the full talk. Um, the one that I did at the conference here in South Africa it was just a shortened version of it. But I mean, I think afterwards I had really, really good feedback. A lot of the developers came back to me. Even uh, I had one person just talk to me last month, and they gave me one of the challenges that I submitted to him to try and do. And he gave it back to me, and he gave it back to me with like several different uh, variations of how he could solve it, and how excited he was that even though it was some like almost felt like a silly Carter, he he rediscovered the joy in Ruby just from that one simple activity. And so I think um, I mean it's it's not really language specific. So if you 
if you work in another language, this could be this could still could relate to you. Um, I don't want to give away too much, but yeah, that's that's kind of the premise around the talk is uh, finding rediscovering the joy of or the relationship that you have with with that programming language. So where in this analogy is the sugar and soft stuff fit in? <laughs> you buy your boss brownies and find him a babysitter. Yeah. Bubble wrap the whole house so yeah. that they, they fall down on something squishy. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say, um, so I've recently been uh, reading a book called The 12-Week Year, and they talk about, you know, basically achieving goals so you you break your year down into 12 so you have a 12 week year instead of a 12 month year and so your weeks become or your months become weeks etc anyway um so you set some goals of things you want to accomplish and then you work toward, toward those goals but one of the things that they tell you to work into each week is a three hour block of time where you essentially play and, um, you know, so you do something that you enjoy it that's not really involved in work. And I've been actually doing that for my uh, coding time. So I've only had a podcast on Angular for like three years. And I finally decided to do Tour of Heroes, which is their walkthrough example. You know, and so I did that in a few hours. Or, you know, I've been playing around with the Ionic framework and did that for a few hours. Or I just picked an app that I thought would be really cool to build and did that for a few hours. But you block out three hours, you actually turn your phone off and, you know, go and, you know, make it some some quality downtime. And, and that's been really, really positive. So uh, for me, at least, I definitely see where this pays off, right? Because there's there's no pressure. There are no expectations. It's just, hey, you know, what do I want to get done in this hour? And, you know, if you want to tie it into what do I want to learn, you can do that. But for me, at least some of the time, it's just, hey, you know, this sounds like a fun thing to build. And so I just go build it. That's it. I think there was a, we are, our company has, we're quite privileged in the way that we get like a yearly hackathon and the whole company, all the people that participate. So even our ops teams and our support teams, everyone comes together and pitches ideas and we can build whatever we feel like. And then at the end of the 24 hours, we all, we all present our, what we've produced and then everyone, you know, uh, we all have like a little panel of judges and they, they re reward that. And I remember the first time I participated in the hackathon, um, everyone was throwing these ideas. I had like 10 ideas on the board. And then the day before the hackathon started, I thought of a new idea. So I just mm -hmm. put it on the wall and it wasn't very much time so that no one could join my team. And so I was, I was on my own. And so I just sat there and I thought, okay, how am I going to, what am I going to do? And so if you had to look at my browser, you, you, you can liken my browser to a hoarder's house. Like you'll find that there's stuff everywhere. It's like I have tabs. I have hundreds of tabs, hundreds and hundreds of tabs and like bookmarks and things that I've, I've saved over the years. And so during this hackathon, I just clicked on that thing and I was like, ooh, these are all the technologies that I've been wanting to play with for the last four years. I'm like, well, let me play with all of them in the next 24 hours. And it was really such a fun activity. At the end of the day, it was, it looked like quite an impressive app, um, although it didn't really work very well. Um, but at the end of the day, I had, I had practiced with more than a dozen of the of the things that I wanted to play with. So like plugins, I wanted to do mess around with the WYSIWYG. I wanted to do dynamically build YAML. And I, uh, you know, just like really abs absurd sort of things. But at the end of that ev event, I just stopped to myself and I just thought, you know, I've, I've had all this tech saved for the last five years. 
I haven't touched any of it. Why now? Like, why did it take this event for me to actually dig into the stuff that I've wanted to play with? And so I think we have to go through these sort of experiences in order for us to fully realize the benefit that we can get from them. And I, I fully agree that three hour um, ritual that you put yourself into, I, I think it was Abraham Lincoln that said that if, you, if he was given five hours to cut down a tree, that he would spend the first three hours sharpening his blade to make sure that it was nice and sharp. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, that's, a, that's a great analogy to take into to programming, right? We, should, we shouldn't really just approach the problem with blunt force trauma. We need to actually sit down and, and the sharper we are, um, the more that we've played around with stuff, the better perspectives we can bring into that problem. Um, so at the end of the day, even though we think this is just us playing around, it's actually making us really much better developers, um, and th- and that's the the side effect of of these sort of events. We may think that it's messing us around, but at the end of the day, we will become much more valuable to the companies that we work for. And I think that's something that every developer wants. They want to feel valued. They want to feel like they they add value and that they have meaning. Yeah, definitely. It's amazing. I wonder how many developers would take salary over appreciation. I think it depends. <laughs> I guess my appreciation is worth five percent. If it's if you're going to pay me more than five percent, you don't have to appreciate me at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just scratch uh, me behind the ears. I have three kids, so you know I will do demenial work for money. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm curious though, Dave, because you do the drifting ruby. So yeah. how how close does what Roberto is talking about you know fall in with? pulling together Drifting Ruby. I mean, some of it, it seems like you would just cover stuff that people really ought to know. But how much mm-hmm. of it is just, oh, well, I played around with this thing until I felt comfortable actually, you know, putting a, an episode together without really necessarily even having to have a real purpose to it. Okay, so sometimes I will do uh, a lot of research on one particular episode to where it's not something that I'm very familiar with. It's something that requires a lot of learning, especially if it's a gem or JavaScript library that's really large. So I'll spend a week or two on it uh, just to record a five minute episode. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, but then, you know, there's other times when I just have had a really rough weekend. The kids have been screaming and crying and, you know, work's been long hours. So I want to keep my commitment that I made with publishing an episode. So I'll do it over something that I already know, like the back of my head and something that would would not take very much research at all. So um, it really depends on what else is going on in my life because I do make my family a priority. You know, um, I do make sure that no matter what happens, that if my wife needs some help or if the kids need something, that I'm there for them. So um, luckily, the Drifter Ruby hasn't suffered from that. You know, especially as they're getting older, they're getting more needy. No, I'm not sure why, but apparently kids <laughs> like attention. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, I love them and I love my wife. So I want to make sure that um, that takes a priority. So um, my love for Ruby, uh, not my daughter Ruby, but the language Ruby, uh, it, it comes second. You know, it definitely mm-hmm. comes second in my life. So my date nights with Ruby is actually 
more than my date nights with my wife, which is kind of sad because she goes to bed early. I stay up late. So um, I'm always hacking away on the computer at night. Uh, but it's something where I truly enjoy doing it. You know, if I were doing this in .NET, I wouldn't even be able to do it for three or four hours a day. Opposed to doing it in Ruby, I can do it all day without even realizing how much time has passed. Mm-hmm. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole, never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent-matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you sign up today using the show's link, that's hired.com slash rubyrogues, you can get double the normal hiring bonus. That's $600 instead of $300. So go check them out at hired.com slash rubyrogues. Yeah, I think... It's very hard for us to be able to, I think most people that might actually be a big thing, right? A lot of the people that I work with, they also, they have families and kids and, you know, you don't want to be able to, you don't want these date nights to interfere with that. And I think we, it's very hard to find these sort of events or these these sort of activities that that can satisfy that that itch without consuming much time. And that's, and that's where it gets quite interesting, because especially if you work with other other languages, um, like you're saying, maybe if you if you are a, a lot of the .NET developers here in South Africa, they are quite keen in, in learning Ruby and picking it up and trying it out because of how similar it is and sort of the, the best practice you can bring from one language to the next. Um, and so a lot of them, when they come, you know, they they're like, well, how can I learn this? How can I put time into this without it consuming my life? Because it seems like there's just so much to do. Um, and I think the big thing is time boxing it, understanding, okay, how much time do I have? And I mean, I think what you, what you're saying is also, it's not bad, right? To, if you're, if your wife is sleeping and you can, you can just work on it for an extra 10 minutes or whatever, or you wake up 10 minutes early and then you go and sit on it. Um, and then while well, you can say, well, you know, honey, you got to sleep and you're the lucky one. Um, I think it's just finding that time. And then all you have to do is just do it ritualistically and then eventually it becomes a part of what you do. Um, and that, and that, I think that's really a very important part of this process. There's a, there's a guy called Craig Rodney and he owns the at South Africa hash, uh, hashtag or uh, tag on Instagram. And oftentimes you'll see uh, what he, all he does is posts a, a picture every day of some beautiful South African scenery that somebody's taken. So a whole bunch of people pitch him these pictures and then he puts it on. And, and it's his passion project. And I was lucky enough to to uh, be at one of his talks where he spoke about this passion project and how 
it it kind of gave him this extra meaning. And so every day he would, at 10 o'clock, post this picture for the whole world to see. And he started doing it, and it was he wanted to do it as a as a yearly project. Let's just start as a an everyday 365 sort of thing. Let me just make it consistent. Um, and just by putting into practice that thing, he's picked up tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers. And, um, you know, it's become his passion project has actually given other people this value. And, and so sometimes we think, you know, it, it's just it, the thing that I'm doing is just affecting me. But in a, in a way, it's going to make us better developers. We'll, we'll be happy at work when we get home. And we're not going to have these bad days or grumpy days because we were able to, you know, uh, it's very hard finding the joy in programming because what we what we focus on all the time is negative stuff. Like someone will come to you, oh, there's a bug and you have to fix this thing. Or, you know, it's very, it's very little, you don't really find it often where you'll be programming and it, maybe it's just between you and the machine where you're like, oh, this code is just great. You know, you feel joy in what you're, you're typing, but it's, you don't get this um, recognition from other people, like patting your back and saying, you know, great job writing the code this week. You know, you don't get it like when salespeople get a sale, they ring the bell and everyone claps, well done, you've done the thing. And so we don't really get much of that sort of positive reinforcement um, just because and we were focused on a lot of the negative stuff. And so, but if we, if we get become better developers and we end up coaching the people that are around us and being able to help and identify these problems really, really quickly, we eventually find that a side effect of also us working on these, these passion projects and these, these um, date nights is that we'll also find more joy in our program, more joy in our life, more joy. We'll be happy when we get home. We'll be happy around those that we're with because we're, we're, we're adding that, that, um, extra bit when we go out and, and help people and and that also shines through that that is a, a big side effect of what we do and you'll you'll start seeing that more and more as you become like a better programmer you don't have to focus on so much of the negative stuff i'm kind of curious what uh everybody here thinks because sometimes i feel like you know what I don't have an Elixir podcast or, you know, I don't have, I don't have like a work related reason to learn Elixir or, you know, some other language. We were talking about Elixir earlier. That's why it's on my mind. Um, how much time should I be spending on areas that relate directly to my work versus, you know, having a, a date night on areas that, that do directly affect my work or directly apply to what I'm doing for my job? Or is it kind of up to me? That's a very good question. I think it's it's going to be very hard to actually answer that and and say this is a definitive way. A nice, I'll give you an idea of one of the cart, one of the date nights that I do is a, it's a it's a what I call the coffee date. Um, the coffee date is something when you would go out and you'd meet up with somebody for five minutes, right? And you'd have a bit of fun. You would chat about a, a specific subject, and then at the end of the five minutes, you go back to work and you have fun, right? Um, one of the one of the coffee dates ideas that I talk about is something called Code Wars, uh, and it's quite a popular uh, platform. Mm -hmm. You can find all it is really is just a carter. You have this little place where you can write your your, your solution to the carter, and then there's a little block for your tests. Uh, and the great thing that I've discovered with this is that not only are you improving your work language, but it's a very good idea that once you've solved one of those those problems, it's just to switch the language and do the same problem again, but now with a different language. So you have your your Ruby your Ruby way of of uh, solving that problem. Maybe switch to Elixir quick. 
and then give it a try or Haskell or change the paradigm so differently that it makes you rethink the problem over and you have to learn now how to solve this in another language. And doing that effectively eventually will lead you to have like a really solid um, idea of how to approach problems, how to, um, you know, not only mm -hmm. at the end of, usually when you finish one of those cartas, you get to see everybody else's answers. So you'll be able to see, okay, this is a really smart way of doing things, but this may be the best practice. Um, and so having that sort of knowledge, I've seen many developers here in, in our own company right now that have gone into a carter to spend five minutes during lunch, done it, switched the language or whatever, and then afterwards used what they've learned in that carter throughout, you know, the next three months just to see how it works and then, you know, expanded their skill set. And that is really, really a, a great way of like maybe highlighting how something that can be quite simple like a five-minute activity, uh, and it, it, it seems like, you know, maybe enumerating over some array and then modifying the value in Ruby may be very simple, but trying to change your paradigm completely and doing it in, in something like Haskell will, you know, you're, make you sit and scratch your head, like, how do I do this if, if I can't use an if block or something like that? And so, um, yeah, it makes you, it, it, that's, a, that's a really good idea of how you can maybe do both at the same time, I guess. So practice your new language and work on, on the language that you do mm -hmm. every day at work. Um, but then again, also perhaps if you are given a task at work or, or something that uh, you feel that you could do better in Haskell, maybe they're talking about some new API that they need to release and it, it needs to do just a, a very simple um, data archiving sort of functionality or whatever. And you feel that Perhaps Elixir might be a better project. It might be a good idea then to go in that afternoon, just fiddle with the project, try get Elixir to do that thing, and then approach the office and say, "Listen, I've I've messed around, and this is sort of the effects, right? We we can look at Ruby, and this is my Elixir implementation, and here's the benefits, here's the pros, here's the cons, mm -hmm. and being able to like do that. I mean, even if they choose to stick with the Ruby one, you haven't lost out. You've you. You can't fail in a forest. I like that saying. Just like if you go into a forest, right, and you cut down a tree, can anyone hear it? You need to achieve some sort of success in order for you to fail. So if you don't go out and try something, you don't go out and, and actually put a lot of effort, you have to succeed to a certain part before you can fail. And you can't fail just by trying something new. It's an it's impossibility. I think it's a bit of a fallacy that people think, you know, I'll, I'll try to learn Elixir and... I'll just really be bad at it because I've never messed around with many other languages before. Mm -hmm. And so go out and just do it. Go out and just try. Um, and you'll probably learn a lot more in that one hour or two hour activity. And who knows? Maybe the company's like, wow, that's a really good implementation. Let's put that into practice and you get to play with more than one language at work. Yeah. One site that I really like looking at is Rosetta Code, which they have a lot of different examples of uh, problems to solve. And then they have solutions in almost every programming language. So you can kind of look at the one that you're familiar with and then go see how it would be implemented in something like Elixir or Ruby or .NET. So it's a really cool site. And I actually just enjoy reading them. You know, seeing some of the different examples and then thinking like, oh my gosh, I love Ruby so much. These other languages suck. But, yeah. <laughs> we all feel that yeah. way. 
So uh, one other yeah. thing that I kind of wanted to to jump in on if we had time is that it seems like a lot of other companies do they, they give their employees time to do stuff like this. I mean, I think the most famous example is the Google 20% time, right? And then they had stuff come out of it like Gmail and some of these other things that I think a lot of people use now. Is there a way to convince your boss to give you some time to do this kind of a thing so that you're, you know, sitting at work in your regular code environment doing code date night, you know, fun goof around kind of stuff that doesn't necessarily have to contribute to the company's bottom line in one way or another. I, yeah, I think, yeah, it's a, it's a double loaded question there because I think that you can't not do one of those sort of activities and not find some sort of benefit. So if you right. were to go to your, your company, right. And you can, so I experienced this in the, the place that I worked in before I worked here at Prodigy. And that was, we used to do something called the Thursday throwdown and each person in the dev team had, had, had a chance. And we did it once a week. And so if I did it on the first day of that uh, first day, the first week of the month, I had to think of a quick five minute uh, activity, maybe write. So we, we used to cover a whole bunch of different topics, often great ideas. I, I would, I love the book, the Prudo book, which is the pragmatic object oriented yeah, design in yeah, Ruby. Yeah. That's the practical object oriented <laughs> design. In Ruby, yeah. I would always refer to it as Pudo. Um, and then Katrina Owen and Sandy Messis wrote their new one, The 99 Bottles, which is a great book, mm-hmm. by the way. And in The 99 Bottles one, they give you the, the the idea of like, let's try write a Ruby program just to do the simple thing, right? Just to make the 99 Bottles song. And then and then while you're going through it, she'll throw in these design ideas. And so maybe you can do a quick five-minute activity and write really poor code in a thing and then present it to the dev team and say, oh, how can we make this better? You know, uh, how do we, how can we, is there anything that you can spot right off the bat that's poor practice? And I mean, doing that sort of activity, so Thursday throwdowns were really, really great. Here in Prodigy, we do a weekly code conversation. So every Tuesday, it, we do something similar where we we've done a security thing where everybody in the whole tech team gets gets pulled into the common room and we're also done with our laptops and they'll throw out a really insecure app and then we have to hack it we have to like try find exploit it and try break mm-hmm. through it and then learn how do we how do we make this a better application and, and that i mean obviously is going to open people's minds to whoa, let's let's sanitize the params that are getting passed in or something like that, right? Uh, let's make sure that our S- uh, SSL options are all set to true within Rails, and then and so that sort of activity will always yield some sort of benefit to the company. And so I, I think the best thing to do is just to um, go out there and prepare it, and then pitch the idea to your manager or to your CTO or whoever's in charge of the dev team and say, listen, we want to start this new thing. It's going to be an in-house upskilling. We want to have better developers. We want to have less bugs. We want to have a higher th- a throughput. And this is the way we can do that in a fun and, and easy way. And so I would say here at Prodigy, we actually we almost dedicate three or four hours to that every week. Um, in in a whole bunch of these small little meetings scattered throughout the week. So mm-hmm. we do something within our own little tech groups. So we have uh, small little teams, 
And so our, our team meets together every Thursday. We have co-conversations on a Tuesday. Um, we review each other's code and talk about, uh, we have PDP goals, which are like these personal development things. So if you want to work in, on something in your own time, learn a new technology or, or practice with something or, you know, build something for the, the company on your own time, you could totally do that. And then um, that would go towards your, your growth plan. And then if you, if you achieved a certain number of things, then you would be rewarded with a bonus or, you know, cause in a way you're going to, you're going to be feeding back to the company. And so there's a number of good ideas that you can pitch, but I think the biggest thing is just to go and try it. Uh, maybe talk to whoever your, your manager is and just say, listen, even if it's just one hour a week, you know, this is going to help us immensely. Having, having other companies also do the same thing. I mean, it's a great, it's a great vibe to be in. If I was to tell all the other developers that I, I usually chat with, I, I will talk to them and say, listen, we get to, we get to have a hackathon once a year and we get, you know, these weekly coding challenges and we get to push ourselves and have, you know, uh, best practice taught to us. And, and then you stop and you see their, their facial expressions like, well, I really want that. Right. That's something that developers want in their daily life. And so a company is, you know, you want to be the place to be at. You want mm-hmm. to be the next Google, the next Facebook. You want to have like a good job satisfaction. And I, I think like what was mentioned was that, you know, would you would you take a job if you got thanked less, if you got or if you got paid less and thanked more? Well, how about, you know, you you get to practice and, and improve your skills and, you know, and you get paid well. And I think just having that as as a side thing is a really good pro for a company to say, you know, I'm I'm going to we provide you with the environment to grow and and the culture of of best practice and being able to stretch yourself and become a better developer. And then as you as you increase in value, we will we will accommodate you and we'll make sure that you're taken care of. And I think as as companies like learn that that's a really good place to be at because. You won't have like high developer uh, throughput. You won't have like people just leaving and, and packing up and going. So that eventually started happening at the first company I worked for. We we had like such high turnover. It was it was getting really bad, and it's because all we sat and did was config changes, and it didn't really feel like you were growing. And so I mean now in comparison um, with the place that I'm working at now, we've gone from eight developers to now over thirty. And so we're one of the biggest Ruby dev houses in in South Africa now. Um, I'm pretty sure we're, we're the biggest in in Cape Town, and it's just because of the the sort of culture and the vibe that's been that's been created around the area and and allowing people to grow in their abilities and allowing them to be able to stretch and and become better and more valuable. Because um, who doesn't want to? be more valuable one day who doesn't want to be able to approach another company in the next five or 10 years and just have crazy amounts of experience and in different technologies. And, you know, I think that that really shines and the developers will find that as a valuable thing. So it's, it's always just going to be a big win for a company to, to allow their developers to go out and stretch and, and to be able to practice and play. Totally. I mean, have, have any of you been in such a, a company where you're allowed to, experiment and try out stuff it'd be quite interested to hear because you know here in south africa it is quite a big thing and i think the ruby community does drive that but is that also quite prominent also in the state side we i i used to work for a company where they had something similar to what you have uh called a brown bag tuesday i think Mm -hmm. and they actually opened it up to the public 
And in fact, I've worked at a couple of companies that have done this where they take a developer and say, you're in charge, you create a, a presentation, teach us something cool. And it could be completely unrelated to programming at all. It could be, you know, about, about ponies, but I, I've ponies. yet to hear one about ponies. Yeah, there was none about ponies. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Anyway, so they opened it up and they, they actually justified that as a recruitment uh, tool. Um, but it, it helped us a lot. It, 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 it gave us, our company, a little bit of credibility, the developers, some, some confidence in presenting and sharing ideas. But it also did offer a really good venue for other developers to come in and kind of see what was going on at, at our shop. I worked at a company that did brown bag lunches as well, but it was very much pushed by the development team. And after a couple of months, it just kind of died. And I haven't really worked at other companies that highly encourage that as much as just expected you to kind of be doing it on your own. Yeah. Yeah. I find that quite interesting because you, you get stuck within the scope of, of what you're, your normally your everyday work schedule, right? What you your everyday life, and if you expose everybody to the same sort of people, and you get to pair with the same people, eventually, like all your brains get melded into this one hive mind. And if you don't have this like outside person saying, "Hey, try this," you know, it might like completely shift the the learning paradigm. I'm really Sorry, curious. I think I yeah, I was going to say I'm really curious to hear what Dave's answer is to this because. Uh, Eric and I kind of live close to each other, and so you know, I I think I know which company we, we he's talking about. We are the same hive. We are. You probably know both of them. We are of the same hive mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chuck and I. So, for us at Sage, we do have a brown bag Thursdays where it's usually someone giving a talk about something uh, .NET oriented, or could be some JavaScript framework or even something Ruby. So they do have that sense. I, d I usually don't go to all of them just because, you know, we are so busy. But one thing I do locally on my team is have a, a peer session where we are going to get together as a team uh, working, you know, that works on our project. And every other Wednesday we'll meet for two hours and we will show a new feature that we're working on, the backend logic, how it's structured, and that kind of thing. And it it always opens up to uh, uh, learning something different, you know, a different way of looking at it or a different way of doing it. Because the application that we're working on, it is something that uh, we've built, we maintain. It's a SaaS application, and it's something that uh, is in you know continual development. So we're always implementing a new kind of feature or trying to figure out how to uh, create the architecture for a new feature and without painting ourselves into corners, which if you always try to think of your end result and what the end is going to look like, uh, knowing that what you need to do right now for the MVP of that feature, but then also where it's going to eventually be, there's a lot more thought that has to go into it to make sure that you're not painting yourself into corners. Because one of the worst things that you can do is uh, have to run a migration on a table that is 500 gigs. You know, you're going to get yourself into a lot of trouble. So trying to think of what really every 
edge case scenario that you're going to need and have for a particular feature and then implement just the MVP portion of it today, it's actually a very difficult task. Because, you know, we're not talking about just like a contact table or a user table. We're talking about something, you know, much, much more deeply involved. So these peer sessions has helped me, our other developer. He's shown me some things that I'm like, wow, you know, I never thought about approaching it like that and vice versa. So just given how much, as you would say, the date nights that we do on our own, learning and reading from other materials, those are our outside influences, so to speak, that when we do meet together again in the week following, that we're always bringing something different to the table. I mean, I think just from everybody's responses here, I, if I was to ask you, did you, within each of these brown bagging sessions, would would you say that it was a success? Did you find value out of it personally? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that that there in itself is the answer, right? If you found value, even in just doing it once or twice or just experimenting with it, if you if you could point back and say, oh, remember that thing that, that Rob did and he messed around with how we should do proper testing and TDD, let's, let's experiment with that today. Having those sort of things to draw back onto is is really the key and that's and i think being able to have these sort of events is so useful and so valuable to a company um and i think you know it starts with it starts with one person you just have to be the guy that stands up and i think i'm a little over enthusiastic about this sort of thing here at the office you know like i'm always the one that's like we have to we have to go and try this thing and when and when they do have one of these events, I make sure that I'm sitting right there in the front and I've got my laptop ready and, you know, I've got like three dozen carters on, on my on my application. And and, when, and if somebody wasn't there, that maybe we do what's called the rule of two feet. So if you find that, you know, as somebody, as we've also mentioned, that um, maybe you're too busy or maybe you, you have a meeting or something, um, the rule of two feet says, you know, you can be wherever you wherever you feel. Like if you feel that you'll be adding more value just working on this thing, then do that. If you feel that there's more value in just sitting down with somebody from another team member and having a quick 15-minute chat about your approach, then go and do that. Um, if you feel that you would get a lot out of this coding session, this Thursday throwdown or whatever, then you can go and, and sit there. And I think everybody should have that that sort of license to be able to say, okay, maybe the session we didn't get as much value or we're doing it now just to do it. Uh, but do it when you, you can get that value out of it. And being able to say at the end of that session, I felt that there was value in this. That's sort of what the aim should be. Um, and so like oftentimes when I go to these other conferences, I'm writing down ideas for these sort of events that I can we can put into practice. So I did, for instance, I did a, a, a training session on the, on the Puda book and I wrote this application that was really poorly at first, I wrote it really neatly, and then I just wrote the test for it to make sure the test wrote, and then I destroyed the code. I made it the worst code you could ever imagine. Like, I named hashes um, and assigned them to arrays just to confuse people, and then used syntax that's very similar between the two of them. And so people just got so confused looking at this code. And I was saying, okay, let's try put into practice this book. And after several sessions, we looked at a principle in each one and said, okay, let's apply that to this code. And then, you know, where do you start? 
and a lot of people would jump in and try to refactor the whole thing and without stopping and saying, well, well let's, let's replan this. And in, at the end of those, those couple of se- uh, sessions, then we, we stopped and, and evaluated, okay, here's a big learnings and wh- what can we take out of it and how can we apply this in our, in our application right now? And since then, we've had other people do presentations. We've had um, uh, Fritz who came and did a presentation on the on the 99 bottles and so he's done several of those and then we had um, you know one of our uh, we've had Willem who came and did his security one and so it just it builds up on other people you don't have to lift the whole company because you say okay who who would like who's got a cool idea for the next one and have somebody else uh, champion that and be able to feel like they're they're going to be contributing I was told when I did my first talk um, the best way to learn something is to volunteer it at a so you pitch a talk topic at a at a big conference several weeks beforehand about a, a topic that you know nothing about, and then once it's accepted, they 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 will tell you that you'll you'll learn more in that that period than you ever have before because you want to. You want to be able to represent what the the thing that you're going to be uh, teaching, right? And the thing that you're going to be talking. And so it's a great way of learning is to put yourself into that position, say, I'll do it. And then you have that pressure, like I have to deliver and you'll grow in that, in that learning more than you'd ever would just like poking at the, at the technology from a distance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you forgot to mention the part where you, you kind of wet your pants because of fear. Your petrification, right? What did I just do? Yeah, they the first accepted time it. Just, panic. <laughs> yeah, panic, right? Yeah, like, and the first time you do it, it's like absolute panic, and then, and then the second time you feel like, okay, I, I know exactly what to do now, and then the third time you become way more comfortable, and eventually you look at those sort of things as learning opportunities, and you'll just throw out a technology that you've heard about, or, and go and and learn it just for the sake of being able to teach it. Um, and that's always a, a great way because oftentimes I would volunteer myself when I just started off at, at, at Ruby, I would go in and volunteer at these, um, you know, code retreats and I would have people that ask me questions and I'm like, Oh my word, I have no idea how to answer this guy. And I don't want to answer him poorly because he's not going to know. And, and you feel like, okay, I'm not going to, I don't know right now, but I'm going to find out for you right now. And you go and you dig and eventually you end up growing and learning together. And that was a a really great learning experience because it also taught me what sort of questions should I be asking? You know, Um, if, if I, if somebody asks you a question about a raise and you have no idea how to answer them, then you can start, you start to reevaluate yourself and say, well, I I don't really know much about a raise. And it's okay to say that. And uh, I think a lot of people, you know, they kind of just fake it. They they learned the syntax, but they don't really they don't really know it in its in its purity. And so when somebody asks a question like that, or when you put them in, you get you put yourself in a position where people will be asking you those sort of questions, then um, you have to make sure that your understanding is sound, and that provides really great learning opportunities as well. So first, not just learning the the technology, but learning in a way that if people ask you questions, that you can answer them, and don't be afraid to say, you know, I don't really know. I, I, I'm not sure, but I can find out for you. And being able to say that, I mean, is, is just as, as important as knowing something, knowing where to find it second to, mm-hmm. to knowing it. I think that's also the sign, the sign of a really good developer. I, you, you find some of the best developers out there. And what do they have open? Google, right? Google everything or, or Dash. Or, or, but they're always referring to docs because 
that's that's really uh, to me there's there's a, a certain capacity that I have in my brain and memorizing stuff that I can look up within 30 seconds is not uh, not one of those things I want to prioritize absolutely yeah so I got to ask you a question date yes. night with date night with Ruby right that's your topic yes and let me paint you a picture the lights dim sure. the lights are dimming a little bit of Al Green. Al Green starts playing in the background. <laughs> I think that's how you should start your talk. That's a, I really that's I a, think that it would be very, very memorable. I'm I'm actually thinking maybe what I should do is just have this like nicely set table with a couple of candles and oh yeah, uh, oh yeah, viewing it. That's that's what you're going to see. They'll be having a date night with Ruby. Oh, it's a bit of, <laughs> yeah. Just be sipping wine the whole time you're talking. <laughs> great yeah if you or your wife is good at sewing you can make a big squishy uh ruby pillow <laughs> to send well, there's, there's, there's your sweet the your sweet and squishy yeah. right <laughs> you, you brought your sweet and squishy with you yeah <laughs> yeah that's right she'll she'll be the one that uh give me all the the tips on how to uh have proper etiquettes around <laughs> the table yeah Oh man! All right, I think we're heading off the shoulder of the road here. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to push this over to Picks. This episode is sponsored by Manifold. Take the DIY out of your infrastructure. Manifold is the best way to add logging, monitoring, databases, and more to your app. Essential services for applications that matter, made by developers that care. All clouds welcome, exclusively for the Ruby community. They're giving away $25 in free credits. Visit manifold.co slash rogues to find and redeem your coupon. Uh, Dave, do you have some picks for us? Uh, I have half a pick. (laughs) (laughs) And I say half a pick because it's still in like super early development. But the other day, you know, I was poking around with uh, React and some Angular And I just remembered how frustrated I was with JavaScript. So one of the things that I really liked in those frameworks is the data bindings that, you know, you can have a input box, you type something in, and then you kind of see the other elements on the page changing based on that input. And I've always really liked that. And, you know, that's always kind of been a push for me to really dive into the JavaScript frameworks. But because I hate JavaScript frameworks so much, or that's too strong, because I dislike them uh, and don't really see the need for them, I started working on this gem that I'm calling Simple Bind. And it gives you that same kind of... um, functionality where you can have a input box, you start typing into it, and then you see the relevant elements on the page uh, automatically update and change as you're making different selections with the form inputs. So I actually just started on the gym this week, but I went ahead and threw up a page, so I'll link in to the show notes on it. And the proof of concept's working, so now I want to really expand it out and you know really make it flexible and good. Uh, so that's kind of my pick. Dave hates JavaScript so much he's writing his own framework. I love it. <laughs> well, no, I, definitely I, I not know. a framework. <laughs> I noticed that you gave half a pick and half a hate, right? You don't hate. Yeah. It's too strong of a hate. Too strong of a. You're you're a, you're a halfer. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, because it's still in its early development, so I can't really pick it as a pick. So it's just kind of half a pick. Is that how that works? <laughs> Something like that. Like, 
Eric, what are your picks? Um, I just see a picture of you like reaching to pick your nose, but like, no. (laughs) (laughs) You got half half a pick there. I got I got a couple. Um, The first one we were talking about um, doing uh, the JavaScript games, and the one that I've tried before is called Screeps. S-C-R-E-E-P-S dot com. It's a very interesting project, and actually companies are using it to uh, to do recruiting. But what it is, it's a, it's an MMO, a massive multiplayer online game, that uh, you control by – you have these little bots, and you control them by writing scripts. And so the whole game is run through JavaScript, and you just let it go, and it just keeps on – rotating it keeps on it's just a, the game loop keeps going and going whether you're in or not but it's very interesting i suck at it i'm i tried playing twice i got destroyed twice and i'm like Ugh. so but i i think that you know if, if you're <laughs> i i think i'm the exception i think you guys would love it it's a great game and uh it's uh you can try it out on screeps.com uh the other one is where did it go i had it let me throw in one more. Uh, codesponsor.io. I apologize for bringing that up every time, but it is very, very important for developers to know that if you're working on open source, you can get funding. Uh, and Codesponsor is working to help you find funding through sponsorship. Uh, and that's what I got. All right. Well, I'm going to throw in a few picks here. One is is just taking some time to get away. So I don't know if it went into the show during the show, but... Uh I went on Facebook and just kind of posted, hey, look, initially I was looking for a kind of a quiet place that wasn't my house where all my kids are running around screaming, where I could quietly record the rest of my finding a job course. But it kind of quickly turned into, last last week was extremely stressful and I've been kind of just completely wiped out for a while. And so, yeah, so I just Anyway, I asked if anyone had a place where I could just, you know, take off for a couple days. And it turned out that a friend of mine, she's actually a member of the local Toastmasters club that I attend. She, she's been up in Washington State for like two months, and she's still going to be gone for another couple weeks. She's like, hey, use my condo. And so, you know, I spent the night in her guest room and uh, just kind of crashed here. And it's been nice. I mean, nobody else is here, so it's just me. And I just took some time off. And so yesterday I spent a whole bunch of time watching Netflix and playing games on my iPad. And you know what? It's it's okay to not do anything sometimes. Another thing that I'm going to pick. So I did make it to a few meetings yesterday that I normally have. One of them is um, I have a mastermind group that I meet with every Monday at noon. And um, as we were talking, my business coach who runs the mastermind group mentioned that, you know, hey, you need to figure out some, uh, you know, mission statement or kind of the why behind what you're doing. And it's something that I've kind of thought about for a while, especially, you know, I have people. Well, so why do you do the podcast? And, you know, I kind of noncommittally say that I'm helping people and, and that that really is why I'm doing it. But, you know, it didn't have me getting all excited and going to be like, yeah, I help people. Right. And so, you know, it, it didn't have a strong emotional pull behind it. And it was like, OK, so what the heck am I doing? Right. I mean, it's stressful sometimes. I get worn out sometimes. Um, sometimes the sponsors, you know, things don't work out the way I wanted to with them. Um, you know, sometimes it's a lot of work. Sometimes you have the entire panel of a podcast quit on you. And, you know, it, it, it just gets stressful. It all kind of piles up. And it's like, why am I doing this? 
I mean, I could go make a difference somewhere else, just slinging code for some company around here. They'd pay me pretty well. And anyways, so there were a few resources that, that kind of helped with this. Um, one of them is the book Start With Why by Simon Sinek. And I've read it before and it's pretty good, but, uh, the, the the problem I have with books is they give you a big pile of stuff to kind of wade through. Um, and so it was a terrific book to kind of help you set your mindset, but it didn't really help me narrow this down. Uh, there was another talk that was how to find your why in five minutes. And I'll, uh, I'll just put a link to that in the show notes here in a minute. But it was a TEDx talk. It was given in um, Florida, I think, or, or no, Malibu. Anyway, um, and so he, he asks five questions that you should answer, and those give you a really terrific um, way of just kind of narrowing that down. And it was funny because I watched the video and I thought about it, and I'm like, yeah, this is the same answer I always come to. But then I realized what I had missed. And so, um, you know, I started really thinking about that and, okay, how do I want to make sure that that's what I'm achieving? Like, that's that's what I'm after. And so anyway, so if you're kind of looking for that for yourself, and it doesn't have to, this is the other realization I came to was that it doesn't have to be a big world-changing thing. You don't have to go out there and create the next Google or, you know, write the book that changes the, the, the way people, you know, think about the world, um, you know. I reach software developers, and if I help them um, have a fulfilling career and the kind of career that supports the rest of their life and their mission, you know, their life purpose, then I'm winning. And and that's kind of what gets me to tear up a little bit and get excited. So, you know, it, it's making that difference one person at a time for me. And it can, it can be that for you. I mean, if, if you care about one small area of the world or one small group in one small area of the world, that's totally cool. So uh, anyway, um, anyway, that that's kind of what I've been thinking about between Netflix and listening to audiobooks and catching up on sleep. So, uh, so those are my picks. Uh, Roberto, what are your picks? Cool. So I've got three. The first is the one that I've already spoken about a little bit, and that's uh, Sandy Metz's new book, Ninety Nine Bottles. Um, I I got it as soon as the first run came out, I was like, no, I have to get this book because I really, really enjoyed the the first one. And I think it's really such a great read and it, and you don't have to be a Ruby programmer to get value out of that. The second is, it's a, a bit of a, a cool way of learning Ruby. So for all those people that are listening that want to give Ruby a try, that want to, you know, just give it a bit of a poke and have fun doing it, um, there's something called the Ruby Warrior, which is a, a great little way of, of messing around with Ruby. And you have to get through a whole bunch of different levels. And in each level, they give you a bunch of different challenges and things that you have to try to work through. It's a really great way and fun fun uh, activity just to learn the language. And then the third is um, something outside of that space, which is a microphone that I've been re- uh, looking up. Uh, I've been thinking to myself, if I'm going to do more of these sort of things, I want to get... Want to sound good, right? Um, and so there's a, a microphone called the Bumblebee, which is made by Neat. And so far, I've been playing around a little bit with it, and I've I've got a mate of mine who has one, and I've uh, I've really really enjoyed it. It's quite a simple thing. It takes something that uh, I thought was going to be quite simple, um, and then as soon as I started researching microphones, I realized, well, there is there's quite a lot to it, um, and it, it it's quite a simple, nice, neat microphone. There's a bit of a, a pun there, but yeah, it's 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 great. It's such a good mic. So those are my three picks 
uh, things that I've I found useful. Maybe the audience may find it useful as well. Nice. I remember when Ryan Bates created Ruby Warrior. I remember playing with that for hours. Fun stuff. It's good to see the block.io has adopted it, though. I didn't realize that. All right. Well, if people want to follow you on Twitter or GitHub or see what you're working on these days, where do they go? Sure. So you can catch me on Twitter. I'm legend underscore Rob. Uh, I think I actually said it wrong in the my Ruby story, but yeah, that's there's where you can find me. So legend underscore Rob, and then on on um, GitHub, I'm just Roberto. So GitHub slash Roberto, you can find me there. I was lucky to get that that space. I guess it's just lucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's where I'm. And uh, yeah, if you if you if there's anybody out there that's that needs a bit of um, you know like help or or uh, if you know you want a little bit of direction, you can grab me there. Or if you want me to help with uh, some open source stuff, I'm all totally open for that. And I think yeah, it's a great way of of getting into the community. It's just like yeah, being able to offer that. So I do a bit of I do have a couple of hours that I put into uh, open source world. So if if there's any people that need help, you can just throw me a message. Awesome. Thanks. Well, thanks for coming. We'll go ahead and wrap this one up, and we'll catch everyone next week. Right. See y'all later. Thanks, Roberto. Take cool. care. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.